be seated. If you have your copy of the Word of God, you can turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 28, the last verse of chapter 16, and the principal text is really chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Today in the Christian calendar is Transfiguration Sunday. It's a time where we mark the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus, which is recorded in the Gospels. And we learn much about this mountaintop experience. Everybody likes a mountaintop experience. I can think of Moses when he was on Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments. I can think also of Elijah when he was on Mount Carmel running from Ahab and Jezebel and her fury and wanting to kill him. And in those places, both those men, as well as others in the Bible, had a dramatic encounter with the living God. And it has been recorded for us. When you come to the New Testament, you find this mountaintop experience has many similarities to the Old Testament mountaintop experiences. And if I could put it this way, the transfiguration instructs us concerning Three things, the nature of God's kingdom, the supremacy of God's Son, and the generosity of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we study for a few moments this marvelous event recorded for us in Scripture. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. And so speak to our hearts of eternal things. And we'll give you the praise and glory of the end. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, the transfiguration instructs us concerning the nature of God's kingdom. Now, it's important that we make the connection between the last verse of chapter 16 in Matthew's Gospel with the first verse of chapter 17. I don't know why the uh, ones who arranged Scripture place that verse there, but you'll see the connection immediately. Jesus said, some of you, some of those standing here, will not taste death, that is, they won't die, until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And then six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and they went up to the mountain by themselves, and the transfiguration took place. Now, this is fascinating, because whenever we think about the transfiguration, we obviously think about God's glory. We think about the glory of Christ, uh, His face shining as bright as the sun, His clothing white, symbolizing purity and holiness and righteousness. But unfortunately, we evangelicals, when we think about Christ's kingdom, often think about something in the future. We think about something that we will come to whenever Christ comes back for us. Well, the bottom line is, this passage ties together God's kingdom and other items. I want you to notice two things. The kingdom of God is inextricably bound to the righteousness of Christ. The kingdom of God is inextricably bound to the righteousness of Christ. And the Apostle Peter confirms this in our second scripture lesson for this morning. 
He gives eyewitness testimony and he says, We saw his majesty when we were on the holy mountain with him. We saw his majesty. To put it in another way, the glory of Christ and his kingdom, as seen in the transfiguration, is about his absolute righteousness and purity and holiness. And that is the most important thing, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus made that plain in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 33. You talk about the pagans, how they run after what we shall eat and drink and put on. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. You know, the Jews were looking for a powerful military messiah. And sadly, the Jews were blind to their greatest need and their greatest problem. It was not their lack of power and might to stand against the Romans. It was their lack of righteousness to stand before a holy God. And that's our greatest need and greatest problem as well. Because think about it. When you can stand before a holy God with His full acceptance and His full support and grace and mercy, then you can stand before the Romans and any other army, any other opposition, anything else that might try to take you down. They needed righteousness. Righteousness is a powerful thing. It gives us the strength and the fortitude to get through difficult times. You see, when you're walking with Jesus Christ and you're seeking to be holy, you're seeking the kingdom. And this transfiguration demonstrates first and foremost that God requires holiness, that He must be approached with us clothed in righteousness. And whenever we come to faith in Christ, we find out that His kingdom is a matter of this righteousness, that I can be cleansed of my sin, that I can stand before a holy God with confidence and assurance, and I don't have to be afraid. The kingdom of God is inextricably bound with righteousness of Jesus Christ. The nature of the kingdom of God is not a matter of Him giving us what we want, but offering to us what we need, righteousness. It's not a matter of wiping out our enemies, but a matter of wiping out our sin. It's not a matter of paying our bills as much as it is paying our penalty because we've sinned against the Holy God. It's not a matter of clothing us with success and luxury, but with righteousness. Whenever your heart is right because you have submitted your life to Christ, there is a confidence, there is a power there is a spirit about you that makes you strong and formidable. We think about that when we think about people like David. God promised him you'll be king, and he spent 25 years on the run from Saul. How did he do it? He was strong in spirit. The psalmist says all the time he would strengthen himself in the Lord his God. I think about Daniel facing the lion's den. And he goes to that lion's den realizing he is mighty in spirit. Why? Because he has a relationship with the living God. I think about Stadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being told, you will fall down at the music and you will worship this idol. And they say, no. 
And the king decides, we'll throw you in the furnace, and I'm going to heat that furnace seven times. And the furnace was so hot that those who were charged to throw these men in the furnace actually died before the men ever got thrown in. When you're mighty in spirit, that is a great sense of power. And you're able to stand against your enemies because the kingdom of God is inextricably bound to righteousness. And the power of Christ is in the gospel. That is the good news to make you and me clean. To make you and me acceptable before a holy God. So the kingdom of God is inextricably bound to the righteousness of Christ. A second item in this particular sphere, the kingdom of God is present and imminent. As I already mentioned, we tend to think about Christ's kingdom in the future. But the transfiguration makes Christ's kingdom a present and an intimate reality. I think about words in Luke 17. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is, there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. It is a spiritual reality. It is a present reality. And Christ, by His transfiguration, is making that abundantly clear. The Bible makes it clear in Hebrews that Christ has been crowned with glory and honor. And everything has been put under His feet. We just don't see it that way yet. It's an invisible kingdom, which has very visible results. We do not see yet everything subject to him, but we know by faith that this is the case and that he is the reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Ladies and gentlemen, the most powerful element of the kingdom of God is its ability to transform a sinner into a saint, to clothe us in the righteousness. You know, when I see the transfiguration, I think also of one day when we all will have new bodies. And they will be as glorious as the body of Jesus in this picture because we believe by faith. Well, I must move on. That is the nature of God's kingdom. And we believe that the transfiguration instructs us. The second thing is the supremacy of God's Son. And we see that in verses 3 through 5. Moses and Elijah appear to them and talk with the Lord Jesus. Other accounts tell us the nature of the conversation. They talked about with Jesus about his departure, his cross. I want you to notice here, don't miss this, is the resurrection of the body after death. Here is Moses and Elijah, two towering Old Testament figures, and they're standing there talking with Jesus. And it demonstrates to us a picture of resurrected bodies. Now, these men were there, and we have to ask why. Well, Moses obviously represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets of God in the Old Testament. And we're reminded that both of these men had mountaintop experiences. You come to verse 4, Peter, as usual, full of confidence, has an idea. He suggests building three tabernacles, one for each man. Now, it's obvious that he is oblivious to the supremacy of Christ. And he shows this by his nervous energy. You know, nervous energy 
to be a symptom of blindness to the supremacy of Christ. You're going through life and you're being anxious. You're anxious for this, you're anxious for that, and you want God to answer your prayers. You pray and pray, but you don't see those answers. We have a tendency to get busy. Some people say cleanliness is next to godliness. Other people say busyness is next to godliness. Or busyness is godliness. I don't think so. And so Peter gets this idea that they're going to build three tabernacles. He's compelled to do something for the Lord out of nervous energy. But you see, the great need, as we learn in this passage, is not so much for us to do something for the Lord, it is to listen to Him. As the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. We see it in the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus is there for a meal, and Mary, or Martha, is busy getting all the preparations ready. And she gets upset at her sister. Why don't my sister help me, Lord? Tell her to help me. And Jesus says, no, the better part is given to Mary. Mary is seated quietly at Jesus' feet and listening to him. Because she realizes that is more important than the meal. That is more important than the preparations. In fact, there's nothing more important than for me to soak up every moment that I can sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus. God the Father is aware that Peter is not aware of the supremacy of Christ. And suddenly, right in the middle of Peter's words, we have a divine interruption. The Father speaks and he declares the supremacy of the one, his one and only Son, the Lord Jesus. You see, whenever we elevate persons or even things to the level of Christ, we automatically lower Jesus and we insult and degrade him. If I take Moses, for instance, one of the greatest characters in the Bible, the one who was given the law, the one who delivered it to the children of Israel, and I raise him up to the level of Jesus, all I do is lower Jesus. Because the one who was given the law and who delivered the law is nothing in comparison to the one who fulfilled and completely obeyed the law of God. I believe the Father is not only interested in the Son's glory and dignity. He's interested in your salvation. Because whenever we elevate anything or anyone, even to the level of Jesus, we're taking away from ourselves. We're degrading Him and the Gospel. And we're short-circuiting what it means to be a child of God. Elijah's ministry summarized all the prophets but Christ was the fulfillment. He didn't just receive prophecies and give them. He gave the prophecies that he fulfilled and subsequently gave to his people. He was the supreme prophet that Moses instructed for everyone to listen to in Deuteronomy 18. You see, he alone is the son in whom the father is well pleased. Jesus alone is sealed and appointed to give the bread of life. Jesus alone has the keys to the kingdom of God. Jesus alone is the one who can give eternal life. And we must be diligent to hear his voice and follow him. You know, religious instruction is valuable only as it leads us to Jesus. And it's very important because sometimes when you preach on these sort of things, the Transfiguration, for instance, or the day of Pentecost, 
Christians have a tendency to say, oh, I wish I were there. I'd have stronger faith if I was with Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. If only I could have been there. And I lost something that I could not be there. Well, the Bible says you and I lack nothing by not being on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter makes that clear in our epistle reading for today. You'll notice he says in verse 19 of 2 Peter 1, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day arises and the morning star arises in your heart. Peter says, I gave an eyewitness account. But you know what's even greater than this eyewitness account? is the very Word of God that is kept for you in sacred Scripture. Because whenever you read that Word and you believe by faith, you can experience the transfiguration. Just like when you take God at His Word and you believe by faith, you can see and experience Pentecost. You can see and experience anything in the Bible because you do so, you participate by the eyes of your heart being enlightened. It's a whole nother realm. When Christians long for an experience, the Bible says through Peter in 2 Peter 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word, so by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Whenever you expose yourself to the Bible, and you pray and ask God, feed me, touch my heart, convict me, He will. But rest assured, Satan will do everything he can to highlight you having an experience and to downgrade your time in the Word. Peter says you have the Word, the prophetic Word, made more sure. You don't have to long for an experience. You need to long for your Lord and to have faith in Him and to obey His Word. Wherever we are, we need to listen to and believe God's Word by faith. And if you're struggling in your prayer life, let me give you some advice. Don't say anything. There are times where we need to go before the Lord and we don't need to present an endless shopping list. We don't need to cry out with our pains and aches. We just need to sit quietly and say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. You truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will, by faith, speak to you. I was driving home yesterday from this church as I was reading and I was wrestling in prayer and I couldn't get any answers. And I don't know how it happened, but I plugged in uh, my phone, you know, you plug it in on your truck and that sort of thing. And uh, usually, if you want to play a song, you have to do that on your phone. All of a sudden, this sermon that I preached three years ago popped on me. And I thought, what's going on? And uh, it just happened to deal with the very thing I was dealing with. It kind of scared me. But when you're alone with God, and you truly believe He will speak to you, and you take the time to sit quietly and say nothing. Watch what he does. It might scare you too. The supremacy of God's Son, the Lord Jesus. We need to listen to him. 
Are you listening to the Lord? Maybe you don't even believe in Him. Well, I challenge you to that, too. Sit quietly and say, Lord God, if you're real, if this is real and not a lot of nonsense, then I pray that you speak to me. Give it time. Sit quietly. Watch what happens. When we have the nature of God's kingdom, the supremacy of God's Son, and then finally, the generosity of God's salvation in verses 6 through 8, really. Peter, James, and John were stricken with the glory of God. All three of them fell down, face to the ground, terrified. It's a split second. All three find themselves reduced to a sinful, foolish, and terrified mortal. Sometimes we in our culture have such a low view of God's glory. I've heard people say, when I get to heaven, I'm going I'm to ask God about this, and I'm going to tell Him this. This is what I think. And you're going, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You don't understand. When you look at the glory of God and His holiness in the Bible, and you consider a comparison with a sinful human being, that's like taking a wax figure, you know, these little wax toys that you can make in a store, and placing it in front of a blast furnace. The holiness of God, the purity of the Almighty is like staring into the sun. You can't do it. And all three men fall flat on their face. But here's the beauty of it. God is a generous God. He's holy. And the Lord doesn't leave them in this present state. Look at verse 7. The transcendent, glorious Lord Jesus generously shows His overwhelming love and condescension. He comes to them and gently touches them. And He tells them, rise up and don't be afraid. You see, the holiness of God and the threat of eternal punishment is extremely important as recorded in the Bible. Because without it, you would never see the generosity and the kindness and the mercy and grace of our God without that backdrop. And you see, the Lord is both. He is absolutely holy. So holy, He can't even stand the sight of sin. And yet, He is absolutely generous and gracious and merciful. And so he comes to us when we're reduced to falling on our face as foolish, sinful mortals. And he says, rise up, don't be afraid. And look at verse 8, it's so important. The disciples react to the generous intimacy of Jesus. They look up and they see no one except Jesus himself alone. Note well that Matthew is emphatic. His words served to emphasize a kind of target fixation. He could have just said no one but Jesus alone. <laughs> but you see, there's an emphasis there. He says no one, no one except Jesus himself alone. And I can't help but read this. I think about the bronze serpent on a pole experience in Numbers 21. You remember whenever the people were bitten by serpents because of their sin and disobedience? And God sent those serpents to bite them. But he also sent something to relieve that. And he told Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and whoever looks at that serpent, that bronze serpent on a pole, they will be saved. It's interesting, all they could do was look. 
They couldn't do anything to make amends. They couldn't do anything to excuse their sinful behavior. All they could do was look unto Jesus. The holiness of God is or should be a terrifying thing to anyone. But the beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't leave us in a terrified state. He swiftly brings His Son, Jesus, into clear view and focus. And I believe this is part of the substance of the power of the gospel. When you read Paul in 2 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 and 14, he says, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And in verse 14, he says, But the love of Christ compels us. And so the terror of the Lord is met with the love of the Lord Jesus. And that creates a powerful message that if I give my life to Christ and submit to Him, I'm no longer subject to that terror, to that judgment, because Christ took my judgment for me. As we gaze at the Son alone, we find comfort, forgiveness, grace, and mercy. We find the super generosity of God all in one person. The eternal Son of God, Jesus, is the only one who can say with authority, get up and don't be afraid. Where are you at this morning? Maybe you're laying in guilt. Maybe you are laying in fear of the future. Maybe you're laying in a pity party saying, God doesn't listen to me. God doesn't care. You need to hear the Word of God clearly this morning. Jesus comes and gently and generously touches you and says, Get up. Don't be afraid. Get back in the race. As the writer of Hebrews says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Where are your eyes fixed this morning? I pray that they're on Jesus, and if they're not, ask Him to make it so in your life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for the transfiguration. We thank You for all the things that we can learn from it. These are just a few. But I pray this morning, Lord, that all of our eyes would be fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That we would recognize your holiness, and in our terror that we would turn to the Lord Jesus to find grace and mercy and generous salvation. Lord, make all these things realities in our lives. We'll give you all the praise and glory now as we prepare for the Lord's table. Bless us as we commune you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.